Thanks, Eric. Uh, thank you very much, Eric. It is uh, a pleasure to be able to be here this morning. Um, as Eric said, I, you, some of you as parents trusted me with your kids. Um, I don't know if you'll ever want to do that again, but that's okay. Um, they all came back alive and safe, so that's a good start. Um, but I want to thank you this morning for uh, allowing me the privilege of being able to be here. Um, it, is, it is such a blessing. I felt very much at home here over the last week that I spent here, so um, yeah, it's been, it's been amazing. Um, but I also have the privilege to continue our series in Genesis. So um, if you have your Bibles, I'd love you to turn there with me to Genesis 3. And as Eric, uh, if you have a Bible there, hopefully you have one on your device or it'll come up on the screen as well. Um, but as Eric sent me the passage for this, this morning, I realized why they asked the Irish guy to come and preach. Um, it's probably not the most cheerful of passages. It might actually even be a passage that as you read it here this morning, it might even resonate with the very core of your sinfulness, the reality of a dark world, the very, the very real pain that exists as we um, live life on this planet. But I don't want to leave you there this morning. It is, in fact, it is one of the only two instances in Scripture where God issues a curse. And it's not a Harry Potter curse. It's not a very happy one. It is very, very dark and very, very gloom. A, a cosmic ramification outworks itself as we read this passage. But as I said, it's not a hopeless story. I think as we spend time in this passage this morning, we'll be able to, to see that God has not abandoned us. In His loving grace, He, he draws near to us. He wants to accomplish uh, His purposes. He knows you and me in such a profound way that nothing can surprise Him. A God we can turn to and surrender, knowing there is nothing better, nowhere safer. So let's read Genesis 3 together. Starting at verse 8, it says this, And I heard the sound of the Lord, and they heard, sorry, the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called out to the man, said to him, Where are you? And he said, I, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is it that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain shall you bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and dust you shall return. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. 
When I was about five years old, um, I, I had my, my father took very, very ill. Um, it was a time in a life where we were missionaries in Peru, so that's where I'm originally from. So if you hear uh, anything that you don't understand, it's either Spanish, Irish, or some weirdo thing that I probably have come up with. Um, but at some point, uh, at, at, some of the, at one point in our missionary life there in Peru, uh, my dad took ill and he managed to burst his colon and required very much urgent medical help. And there's a picture of my dad, I think, there somewhere. Yeah, yeah he's a good-looking guy. Um, and However, being in Peru, you don't have the medical availability that maybe you would have here or in, in Ireland. So let's just say um, we were in big difficulties. So we had to say our goodbyes, and, and it, it took, they took my dad on the first medical plane in a way that they could and to make sure that he would get some help. And at this point in my life, I really probably didn't understand the ramification of what was going on. I knew that my dad was very ill. I knew that I might not see him again. And there was nothing I could do about it. I grew up in Sunday school hearing stories of the Bible, and I really wasn't intrigued by Christianity at all. In fact, any time my parents made me pray, I would pray for the dog of the ne- that was owned by the next door neighbor rather than pray for anybody else. Yeah, it was in this maybe life-changing moment, in this moment where tensions were high, in this moment where um, I, I didn't really understand why on earth this could be happening to my dad, that God made me very aware of my need for Jesus. I'd heard stories of this Jesus that could heal people. I'd heard stories of this Jesus that who, who would draw near to people in times of need. He, he seemed to know the answer to the overwhelming questions that were going through my mind at the time. So with uh, childlike faith, I asked Jesus to take control. I, I asked him to forgive me, and, and, and I know I wanted to live a life for him. An amazing moment. In that moment, I probably really didn't know the magnitude of what was going on, but I had peace and it warmed my heart like never before. My dad to this day remembers a phone call I made when I called to tell him the good news, and his prayer that day was, Lord, if this is what it takes for him to know you, it's totally worth it. Out of a life and death situation, out of a, out of a situation that, was, that seemed hopeless, that could very most likely end in absolute catastrophe, in hurt, in pain, in grief, God received the glory. God was sovereign. God was going to accomplish His purposes in my life and in the lives of my family, so much so that even if grief had come, God's glory would have shined just as bright. The narrative we find ourselves today is is one, a moment in history, a moment in our history in which God didn't leave humanity despite our rebellion and sin, despite a moment where we actually turned our back against God. And this is one of the big ideas we'll see throughout this text, that the more we become aware of our sin, the more we see the depravity of this world around us, as we draw near to God in these situations, we will see His grace towards us in such a comforting, loving, and saving way. This is God's grace on display, and that's kind of my my title for this morning, God's grace on display. Adam and Eve, as they listened to the serpent, they threw themselves into a pit that seemed bottomless and that would never be able to be rescued, but God drew near to them in grace. But if there's God's grace on display, it means that there's circumstances that required grace, and we're going to 
spend a little bit of time in this really, really tough couple of verses that really outline a really, really difficult situation for us. And so that's the first thing I want us to focus on this morning. The first thing we see in these, in these verses is there's a new relationship. Something has changed. The moment sin enters the world, the relationship between God and the, the people who He created changed drastically. Read verse 8 with me there in your Bibles. It says, And they heard the sound of the Lord, Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves. They didn't stay out. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. It's so picturesque, isn't it? You, you can almost see it like little toddlers that are, that are running away from their mom and dad when they've done something wrong. They're hiding in the trees. The presence of the Lord instills fear in them. And this is a big deal if you think about it, because the Eden was a place of harmony with God. It was a place of where, where there was no barriers between God and humanity. There was, there was shalom. It was peaceful. It was trusting. It was joyous. But in a few verses, everything seems to change. As Adam and Eve sinned, their eyes are open to the depravity of what they have done. Their hearts were now corrupt. The, 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 the answer sin gave them was that they have to run instead of run close to the Father. And I wonder if that situation kind of seems familiar to us in this day and age. Is our instinct when sin is in and, and, and working through us in such a vivid way, is our, instinct, or is our instinctiveness to run towards God or is it to run far away? And a quick point I want to make here is that if you're ever wondering whether sin has a hold on your life, look at who's around you. Because if you are trying to be a Lone Ranger Christian, if you're, if you're here trying to be driven, afraid, away in anger or, or in fear from your community, it might just be that sin is leading you in retreat and fear. It might just be that there, there, there's elements of your life that are making you so isolated that you can't even see God. Now, I'm not saying that to be introverted, because some of us are, like myself, um, it doesn't mean you can't be introverted, you can't spend time alone, but, loves, uh, but sin loves to take you away from the safety net so that the only voice you are hearing is one of defeat. It's one of loneliness, it's one of shame, it's one of fear. It's one that tells you you are not worthy to be even near God. And as Adam and Eve, they try to hide. And we have to admire the irony of this, don't we? Come on, guys. This is the, these are the trees of the garden that, that he created. This is, this is his trees you're trying to hide in. You can't hide from him. And they're corrupt and miserable. They're driven to hide in fear from the person that they could definitely not hide. A relationship of fear. And, and I hope you can see how devastating this is and how disorientating this is for Adam and Eve. How disorientating it can be for us if we allow a life of sin to corrupt us constantly without seeking repentance. But what does God do? He calls to Adam and says, where are you? How gracious, right? God nudged Adam to his senses. God could have driven them out immediately, but he gives them a chance to come out and come clean. What is Adam's answer? He has no admission of doing anything wrong. He conceals the, 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 the cause behind the symptoms. It is now a one-way relationship of deceit. I was afraid. I was fearful. I had to hide. I felt shame, so, and I, I was naked, so I had to go away. Adam was literally trying to shrink away from God, not telling him what actually happened. But God is no fool, and he says, "'Who told you that you were naked?' 
Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? This is the very definition of being busted. He, they, nothing was going to get by God. Notice that God didn't just ask what, what, they, what they ate or what they had done wrong. He said, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? He's very specific. He's saying to Adam, did you disobey? Did you do the one thing I asked you not to do? Their relationship had been corrupted. And now Adam's all about self-preservation. He says, it was that woman that you made me. In fact, it was the woman you gave me that, that gave me that fruit. It is her fault. It was simply her fault and your fault, God, for giving her to me. Nothing to do with me at all. And Eve's answer wasn't much better. She said, it was a serpent. It wasn't me. Don't look at me. Nothing to do with me at all. The buck kept getting passed on and passed on and passed on. And I want you to, to put, we want us to pause here for a second and see the, the devastation that sin can cause to your relationships. I have a slide up that kind of breaks this down. Sin breaks harmony. It was one of, it was one of where, where there was once an open line of communication. There is now a God that has to draw near to us instead. The, the sin brings shame. We, we literally want to hide in our shadow of guilt. Sin, sin brings fear. We want to run away from our Creator. It brings self-centeredness. I need to protect myself. I, I, I can't take the, bring, the blame. Sin brings disunity. Adam and Eve were, were blaming each other. The woman who was Adam's delight is now an object of his blame. Uh, the woman who he had the duty to protect and care for is now being thrown under the bus. Sing brings deceit. The, the buckets keeps getting passed on and passed on and passed on. Excuses and justifications are made. There's no sight of surrender to the God that is calling them out. A whole new relationship dynamic is on display. It shows its ugly head, and it's so severe, so drastic, so violent that not only have they turned against each other, but they've turned against God, the one who gifted their relationship to each other and everything that they knew. And I wonder if our relationships with one another start to see a little bit of resemblance here. Maybe even God has... Um, is making you aware of how your relationships look like today. As Don was saying last week, a, a sin overflows from within us. Now our closest relationships are going to change. It is obvious. And our excuses can be, I, 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 didn't, I didn't know what I was watching. I didn't put that stuff online. So it was just there. Everyone else was doing it. So don't look at me. It was only once. It was he or she, my mom, my dad, my siblings, my partner, my circumstances. It was those things that you gave me, God, that have made me sin. Have you have, if you had only removed these problems from me, I, I would have been okay. I would have been safe. I was never specifically told or taught, so, so it's okay for me to sin. These are all the lies we can very, very, very easily believe in. And I don't know which of these lies you're believing in today. I don't know what it is that is causing you to maybe stumble or, or what it is that is maybe causing you to even tremble in fear. But Genesis shows us in a very, very real way our need to be aware and understand that, sneak, that sin will sneak into every crevice that we give it. The craftiness here of the serpent is, is one of a ruthless attack. It goes after, it tries to ruin one of the primary reasons for our existence, to enjoy in relationship with our God and, uh, and the creation around us. Of course, the enemy is going to go after anything that will taint our God-given relationships. 
J.I. Packer puts it like this, the purpose in essence was and is the endless expression of an enjoyment of the love of God between His rational creatures. Love shown in worship and praise and thanks and honor and glory and service to Him in fellowship, privileges, joys, and gifts that He has given to them. Sin wants to destroy that beautiful picture. So before I go any further, we have to stop and ask ourselves, are we aware of the destruction of undealt sin that may be causing a disruption in the relationships with those around us, with God? Are we allowing maybe the care of, for those around us, our family, our friends, our church family, to be characterized by deceit, by, by self-centeredness, by disunity, by, by even fear? Maybe what tree is God gently calling you out from? What trees of failure or disobedience or stubbornness, grudge, are we hiding behind, robbing ourselves from being able to experience the graceful God who does not want to stay away from us, who does not want us to stay in that darkness? And I ask these tough questions because what we're going to read next is probably even tougher. It highlights even more the severity of God and how He, of the severity of sin and how God treats um, sin as well. But I hope that as we become more aware of our sin, as I said at the start, as we become more aware of our sin and it, it, its effects in the world around us, I hope, I really do deeply hope, we have a higher view of, God, of God's grace, mercy, and love. Because what happens next, just in case if you hadn't had enough, shows us the really, 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 really definite destruction that sin can cause. God declares a new order for what has to happen or how things are going to be. God is so holy, so just, that, it, that he, anything that goes against His character cannot be left undealt with. And so, He declares a curse on a serpent. He declares a curse on Eve and Adam. And whilst the serpent comes first, I'm going to do a little, something a little bit unorthodox. I'm going to start with the woman and, and Adam first, and hopefully by the end you'll see, you'll see why. But let me read verse 16 for you to just kind of reorientate where we are at. In verse 16, it says this, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desires shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And he said to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. And just before I, I unpack this a little bit, I thought I'd give you a little bit of an illustration. Um, one of my old housemates uh, once offered me a very lovely baked uh, piece of banana bread. Um, I, and maybe some of you are familiar with banana bread. It was all the, all the rave during COVID. And um, it was, in fact, a habit of this friend to never buy food. So I started the question, where did you get the bananas from to make this banana bread? And as I tasted his freshly made banana bread, um, I remembered that I had thrown out some bananas that had gone a bit bad and that they had gone into uh, the compost bin. And so with fear, I asked him, had he used the bananas from the compost bin? And his answer was, they're fine. They have skin, so it's grand. Don't worry about it. Needless to say, I nearly threw up. And the banana tasted good. Don't get me wrong. It was really nice. And I, had, I would have had no idea I would have been in contact with the compost bin, but it was completely ruined for me now that I was aware of how it had been ruined. Something good 
was now ruined, something that was to be enjoyed, something that was for pleasure and for, for joy and satisfaction was now contaminated. In God's declaration of a new order, a curse, a curse that reflects a cosmic devastation, we see how things have changed from order to chaos. Suddenly, it's, it's not only our relationship with those around us that are affected, but the devastation is causes our own personal life and the world around us to absolutely crumble. And it starts with Eve. We read that she will have pain in childbearing, and, and she will have pain in childbirth as well. These are two different things. And whilst I'm completely unqualified to be able to speak of the severeness of this pain, and hopefully, uh, well, I know I will never experience this pain, um, but it, it, it speaks of a corruption that intrinsically ruins something joyous, something that was to be enjoyed by, by women, something that was a key area of her life. It wasn't pain that only came one day. It, it was in, not only during childbirth, but it was childbearing. From conception to birth, there was going to be, it was going to be characterized by pain. And for Adam, it wasn't much different. There was a physical breakdown for him as well. For the same word that was used for Eve's pain was the same word used for Adam's pain and toil towards the ground. It says, in the job as key provider for his family would be a job of pain, of struggle, and frustration. It says, in pain you shall eat all the days of your life. It thorns and thistles it shall bring forth from you. In both cases, there is an absolute physical breakdown of what was before sin, a joyous responsibility and calling. One commentator puts it like this, where, there is, where the pair had life, they now have death. Where they had pleasure, they now have pain. Where, abound, where abundance, now a meager subsistence. Where a perfect union and communion, now alienation and conflict. And if you think about the big picture here, it isn't narrowed down to simply mothers and those who are working the ground. Sin is going to ruin and going to try to, to, to bring chaos to the very thing that God has blessed you with for joy. In the craftiness of the serpent, he wants to take away joy from you. This doesn't mean that God's blessings are joyless. It doesn't mean that God tempts us or gives us anything that is evil. Don't get me wrong. But in the craftiness of the serpent, of the enemy, in our natural tendency now towards sin rather than righteousness, we have a natural ability to take a good thing and make it an idol. We have a natural ability to go from a God-given passion to a lustful desire. From a godly desire to grow, now there's a greed for power and for authority. And again, it doesn't mean that joy, you can't have joy in, 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 in having children. It doesn't mean that sometimes you, you forget about the pain of things going on around you because God has blessed you in such a way they have a new vision of what is good. It doesn't mean that you can't experience joy in the blessing of your job, in your schools, in your day-to-day -day work when you're using a God-given talent or ability. But it does mean that these things will not bring ultimate satisfaction. As sin brews in us and in the world around us, sin seeks to rob us and even cloud us from a God-given joy. Again, as Don was explaining last week, where, where sin attacked us from the outside, now a new order has been created, and there's now a natural disposition in us to, for sin to overflow in a Christless life. 
So whether you're, you have a calling as a mother or a father, a student or a teacher or a nine-to-five worker or a night shift diehard, because of sin, we're in an economic, cultural breakdown. Sin has corrupted everything. Tim Keller says, work is not a curse, but work has been cursed. We will be able to envision far more than we can accomplish. Everything will be frustrating and difficult and will wear us down. It's not quite the cheery note that you're maybe hoping for this morning. How much more should we be fighting for joy? We're, we're being told that we're, we're inclined to be totally fatalistic. God says to Adam, cursed is a ground because of you. Everything has been corrupted, both big and small. And it is so easy to identify some things that are, that are naturally identified as sinful. Of course, we'll see murder and adultery and theft and heresy as obvious results for the fall. But it goes even more further than that. It also includes poverty, it includes mental illness, it includes bad government, it includes poor race relations. It goes and expands to everything. That even for those who have hope in Christ and live by the Spirit, even though we, the sting of eternal lostness has been taken away, we live in a world where sin will not stop giving us a hard time. And if we're living in a Christian bubble this morning and never spend time with non-believers, I think you can easily lose the ability of being able to empathize and draw near to those who live in this devastating, hopeless existence. We might not see the day-to-day effects of sin that is corrupting those that have no hope. We may even limit our, our Christian outreach to evangelism and conversion and not care for the homeless for those that are in need of counsel, for those who are neglected, for, for those who are neglected, who, for those whose voice aren't heard, for those in need of actual practical love and action. This is how good sin is. It takes, it takes your focus so away from what God has blessed you and what God has put, you, put around you. And whether you're a Christian or not this morning, I know for a fact that you're experiencing or will experience the pain and toil of sin that is described here. And my heart breaks for you if right now you're experiencing a really tough time. But I want to encourage you that this is not where the story ends. You see, just before this new order, just before this new relationship dynamic was on full display, we read of a sovereign God that already had a plan in action. A God who is not surprised by any of this. A God who, even though His grace is obvious throughout the rest of these verses, in, in how He interacts with Adam and Eve, He doesn't simply wipe them out. In fact, He, he, he even issues a curse, but He first gives them hope. We see grace full on display here in verses 14 and 15. There is a hope, a certain hope promised for lost humanity. And that is my third point, and that this will finish hopefully um, this morning. Let me read verse 14 again. It says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the fields. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. God wastes no time with the serpent, doesn't he? Adam and Eve, he asked them questions, he draws them out, he gave them a chance to come clean. But the serpent, there's nothing but curse and defeat left for it. 
This again highlights the severity of sin and the tempter behind it all. God wants nothing to do with the serpents. A holy, just, and perfect God cannot let sin get away with anything. J.I. Packer again puts it in such a good way. One of the most, he paints a picture of Satan and he says, it is one of unimaginable meanness, malice, fury, cruelty directed against God, against God's truth and against to whom God has extended his saving love. The very evil represented here means that the serpent, that for the serpent there was nothing left but bad news. The serpent was cursed to go on its belly and eat dust all the days of its life. And if you're anything like me, you're probably imagining that before the fall that maybe the serpent was standing up and maybe had arms and legs and tiny arms to move around and do things. But this is not what this means at all. In fact, it is a symbol that highlights a serpent being rendered to the absolute lowest of places. Where the serpent tried to exalt, exalt itself above my, man, it is now driven to the ground. Where it used fruit to tempt Eve, now only dust it will eat. It is a new meaning given to an already existent reality. And can we see how gracious God is to Adam and Eve now? Because to the serpent, there's nothing but lostness. And as we participated in sin and associated ourselves with the serpent, we deserve this. But God extended His love in grace. And if these symbols for the serpent weren't enough to scare you, there's a final declaration that brings us an absolute eternal hope. Look at verse 15. There will be enmity between the serpent's offspring and the woman's offspring. There is an outright war declared here. And this, isn't, this doesn't mean that there will be a classic good versus bad kind of movie because there will be no group that will, want, that will know goodness in and of themselves, but there will be a group of people that will see evil for what it is, and they're going to, there's going to be enmity between them and the seed of the serpent. Even better, this won't be a war without an end. Verse 15, we have the most glorious spoiler of the story that has to end. From the seed of the woman, there will be a serpent crusher that will come and have victory over the serpent. Yes, the serpent will bruise its heel, but the serpent crusher would come and crush the serpent's head. A promise of God to intervene in every single generation, each step of the way, as a promised champion arrives to crush the serpent's head. Before God gives Adam and Eve a very, a very just, a very holy a very, very challenging declaration, he promises a certain unwavering hope for them. And I'm sure in this moment that was so hard to see. I'm sure that there was maybe feelings, um, their feelings were probably all over the place. I'm sure there was maybe fear, frustration, maybe even anger for running through their head against God. Much likely, like, like our expectations are when things go wrong, we turn to God in fear, yet He has made a holy provision that cannot change, that cannot fail. And we can get really excited about this this morning, because there's a God who not only is aware of it all, who knows the devastation that sin can cause, who knows the corruption and chaos that comes as a result of sin, 
but he also guarantees a hope. He guarantees an end to all the pain. He guarantees that the serpent's head would be crushed. He guarantees that he will have the final word. That's exciting. The triumph over sin and the serpent, over your sin as you believe, will be carried by a single individual. And if I may spoil it for you, that individual is Jesus. This is grace on display. This is grace on display. Humanity in its worst moment, a moment where the sermon thought he had got away with it, the moment that rebellion and chaos entered the world, everything seemed to be lost forever. God had a plan all along. This wasn't a plan B. This wasn't God simply reacting. God had a plan to redeem, a plan to save, a plan to restore. And the rest of this beautiful book we read every week, that we preach from, that we hopefully read every day and spend time in communion with God, unveils the rest of this story. We see the serpent crusher come. Even we see, we see the serpent crusher die, but he rises again, a moment again in which all hopes seem to be lost for three days. But after this, Jesus rises from the dead. The serpent crusher lives so that we could know that death was not the end of the story, so that we could know that death did not have the final say, so that we, as we believe, as we repent, as we ask for Him to reign in our life, we can join in this victory, so that our sin no longer is the end, but that we could have life, joy, satisfaction through Him. And if there is ever a moment in your life where there, whether you doubted if God actually cared about you or not, this is your answer. Despite us being destined to physical and spiritual death because of Adam and Eve's sin, despite our daily rebellion against the holy of holies, despite a natural disposition to hate now, to, to shame, to chaos, to fear, God had already a plan to restore us to Himself. And I don't know where you stand today, whether you associate yourself with these same attitudes of sin or, or fear or shame or rebellion or self-centeredness like Adam and Eve did, or whether you don't know where you're at at all, or where you're maybe simply angry against God because He hasn't acted the way you expected. Here we see a God of the unexpected, of where everything seemed to not work out. God had a plan all along. Can I assure you I can promise you that God has not abandoned you, that you are not purposeless, that sin and its effects on your life is not all that there is, that just like God didn't leave Adam and Eve, God has a perfect plan for you. And as the band comes up, I want to I ask you to, to, to read these verses with me. This is, this is the words of Psalm 139, and, and we, read the, we read these a couple of weeks ago, and it is so encouraging. From, your, from you were formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. Intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written one of the, every one of them. The days were formed for me when I was yet none of them. In the infinity of pre-existence, God knew exactly who you were. 
He knew every one of your mistakes. He knew every, every, th- every way you were going to rebel. He knew every way in which you were going to affirm your rebellion against him. Yet he loves you so much that instead of running away, he gives you his precious, holy, sinless, perfect son so that he may carry the penalty for you in return, giving you salvation. That in the salvation, we are clothed with righteousness. We're given the Holy Spirit to fight this war, to fight this war that is being declared here in Genesis 3, knowing that the victor has already won. That only as we await the day where the serpent crusher returns, where everything will be restored. The enemy will want you to believe so badly, so badly, that God doesn't care. Like in the garden, you might hear the whisper, does God really love you? Is he actually interested in your wandering soul? I please beg you to absolutely ignore this if these are the thoughts that are going through your mind. God has shown his faithfulness. He has shown his, he is absolutely sovereign over it all. And if you're a Christian here this morning, as you see God's grace in full display in this text, he reminds us of his power and his ability to be sovereign over everything and fulfill his purposes no matter what. You can surrender yourself in those moments where life seems absolutely unclear. Bring it all to Him in prayer, coming to Him in faith, boldly, boldly knowing that despite enemy, the enemy trying to blind you that there is no plan, there is a plan that He is not finished with you yet. That you will, as you have breath in your lungs, you can declare the words of Romans 8. For we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. What then shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who shall be against us? Who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all? How He will not graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, He was raised. He is at the right hand of God. He is indeed interceding for you. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, shall distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No. In all these things, you are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Your very real struggle, your very real pain, your very real battle with sin, with doubt, with fear, I promise you, has been met at the cross. The only way to be hopeful in light of darkness is to turn to Jesus. As he has promised to us, he will one day return and call us to your one true home where the devastations of these effects will seem like nothing. God's grace on display here is that he began a work to redeem and to bless, that we have all contributed only sin and regret. Yet despite the enemy's best attempt at claiming God's glory, at claiming God's authority, God's power, God's holiness, his perfect character, his, he shines brighter even more. And I want to finish with this question. What on earth is stopping you from turning to God when you see the devastation of sin? 
What are you allowing to hinder you from being able to, to hold on to this God who is, who, who is so graceful and generous in love? He isn't out there turning you away like Adam and Eve. He's drawing close to you. I promise you that there's no place safer, no greater comfort than making a daily habit of bringing our joys and our very, very real sorrows to God. I promise you that is the best way you can deal with the severity of sin, to find hope in what seems hopeless. So we praise God now for how much he has done for us. Thank you, guys.